it is that mindset around soil health and around how do we work with nature and how do we actually be vulnerable with each other and that vulnerability is what enabled us to really learn like just being totally honest that hey this bull doesn't look very good and I don't know why and helping each other out so the learning was phenomenal. Welcome to the Quorum Sense podcast where we explore how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative and enjoyable farming systems. I'm John O'Fru. And I'm Duncan Hub. Today we're talking to Nicole Masters, an independent agroecologist, systems thinker, storyteller and educator. Her book, For the Love of Soil, showcases examples of the principles and tools producers are using to regenerate their soils. With over 20 years of practical and theoretical experience in regenerative agriculture, Nicole is recognised as a knowledgeable and dynamic speaker in the topic of soil health. John and I are joined by Nicole Masters all the way in Big Timber, Montana, which is, if my geography serves me rightly, 12,500 kilometres from where we are now. So middle of Montana, just above Yellowstone National Park, broadly so. Yeah. So not just around the corner. No, but luckily you bought... It's a pretty sweet spot. Oh, I was looking on, yeah, Insta and yeah, what a cool place. So I can see why you're, uh-huh. why you're there and we'll have to try and get over there one day so. oh yeah yeah so Jono how are you one day yeah man I'm, I'm good good stuff I'm good righto well Nicole we'll jump right in um mm-hmm. what do you think your in your experience compared like comparing New Zealand with Australia and the USA what's our biggest opportunity to enhance our ecosystems yeah it's a good question um and Obviously, the U.S. is a very, uh, there's so much diversity here. So you can't just talk broad strokes about the U.S. in terms of ecosystems. But I think in New Zealand, certainly our opportunity to enhance um, ecosystems is massive because of our very young soils and our temperate um, environment. So it actually gives us a competitive advantage above others that maybe are on more degraded soil. So, yeah, we, it's exciting. Is it what what would be a place in the states that is quite similar to New Zealand? Would like places like Oregon? I think there's a lot of grass seed and stuff mm-hmm. growing. Like in Oregon, it would be probably quite similar to to here. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oregon, Northern California has got some very similar environments. Yeah, even um, parts of Washington State. Uh, yeah, I mean it's interesting. Even I mean on the coast, both sides. I mean Vermont obviously gets a lot colder, but it's interesting looking at the soil, you know, a lot of woody soils. So there's, there's some similarities. Um, but we have, you know, these beautiful young volcanic soils that give us an advantage. Uh, and, and we have glaciated soils as well. So, yeah, similar but different. Mm, and just on that too, um, you hear a lot of people say, Nicole, uh, that, you know, New Zealand soils aren't as poor as likes of those in the States and uh, one thing that I hear often people love to say is uh, this is an American fad, this soil regeneration mm-hmm. thing. We don't need to do that mm-hmm. in New Zealand. What would you say to that? Yeah, it's kind of weird. And I guess because I've been involved in this for over 20 years and I look at who some of my early mentors were and they were all New Zealanders. So it's kind of curious to look at the US. And I, I guess, you know, nothing like being motivated by being happy because you have to, right? So if you totally degrade your soil, you start to become 
a bit more innovative than New Zealand where, you know, we have fairly regular rainfall and have these higher organic matter soils than a lot of um, potentially American and certainly Australian soils. Uh, but that doesn't mean that... It, I mean, I look at it in some ways in terms of thinking of some of the indigenous agriculture and traditional farming methods, and it's a global it's a global approach in terms of how do we work in sync with nature. So it doesn't matter where you come from. Um, and it's interesting because when you come here to the states, people seem to think that regenerative is coming more from Australia. So it's it's all context. Everyone's, everyone's just avoiding. Yeah, we don't need to. Yeah, everyone's kind of thinking everyone else is the leader, but we're all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely. That's um, yeah, quite funny, that isn't. I suppose that, yeah, a good question. I was pondering that on the way in, Nicole, because obviously you've been on the New Zealand scene for longer than I can remember. Um, like your name was popping up well before it was even a thing in my mind. So what? how long, just to give it back up truck a wee bit, how long mm-hmm. have you been doing this? Like how, like, and I suppose might be a good chance to sort of say how you got into it and what mm. what go those bells mm. ringing. Are you saying I'm old, Duncan? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> I was going to go with experience. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I, I studied ecology and I ended up majoring in soil science. Like I got really excited about soils Um and plant biology, probably like the late 90s, 97, 98. Um, and I actually went on to manage community gardens in 1999 um, and really thinking about, you know, what was the different soils that were required for different plants. And it probably was an Elaine Ingham workshop in, two, in 2002 that really just kind of sparked me off because she talked about the soil being alive. And I'm like, whoa, no one mentioned this at university, (laughs) you know, like it's alive. Um, Yeah. And so I I think the first workshop I ever did was in 2003 and I was teaching mycorrhizal fungi to uh, avocado growers. So the education side for me, I've been doing this for a really long time and it was kind of a little bit of that fake it till you make it, you know, and, and, and I learn, I think, as well through teaching. So it was a way for me to to really grasp these concepts more deeply was to be communicating it to others, which I, I look back with horror now. But um, yeah, it's it's how we yeah get through this. I guess it's kind of cool, like where we're at now with in New Zealand, especially with the you know pretty open source learning and just farmers farmers learning the way we've been doing it. Yeah, like, with whole quorum sense saying it's yeah, it's not not a new not a new phenomena uh, like in your experience if you've been doing it that long it's a yeah it's, it's, it's quite often a lot of people say uh, if you have a field day at your farm it's not yeah. not you doing the teaching it's you're often doing the learning so it's, yeah it's it's quite cool in that respect yeah I think um I think it was 2004 when we started the biological barbecues you know and, and that was just a bunch of farmers and growers getting together and we go and look at each other's properties and I think the advantage that you have now is technology. I mean, you have WhatsApp that you can share things. It, we we weren't doing any of that. It was, you know, a phone tree to call each other up to, to organize something. You know, it was pretty primitive. And the learning from that was just extraordinary. And I think you, you're fast-tracking that learning by able to, I, I kind of, like I look at your Quorum Sense discussion group and it's like, who can out better you know, look, look at what I'm doing with my soil or look at the cover crop mix I've got or look how, you know, great this is working or actually look how this isn't working, you know. So we called it ruffling through the underpant drawer that we'd go to each other's properties 
and really this is the worst thing Let's you know, let's brainstorm this. And then this is the, this is what's really working. And I think for me, so much of regenerative agriculture, and I, I really hate having to label anything because now we're going to end up in dogmatic states and certification, but it is that mindset around soil health and around how do we work with nature and how do we actually be vulnerable with each other. And that vulnerability is what enabled us to really learn, like just being totally honest that, Hey, this, this bull doesn't look very good and I don't know why and, and helping each other out. So the learning was phenomenal. Mm. And did you find Nicole and, you know, cause you said it at university, there was not much talk of soils being alive and the discovery of soils being alive opens the door to this whole world of com- the complexity of, you know, functioning ecosystems. Did you find mm. that that rippled out into outside areas of your profession as in you know did that affect the way that you observed things beyond the business as usual uh soil stuff we talk about the mindset a lot i I feel Um, like it's a pretty big conversation yeah well i think i think for me i never went through that paradigm shift Like I've always been, like I came from a background of organics and permaculture and biodynamics, like, um, although it wasn't like a hardcore, I taught at the biodynamics school for seven years. It wasn't hardcore biodynamics. Is that, you want to talk about dogma? But um, (laughs) I think for me, this is, it had always been my mindset. Like growing up, I was always really interested in the asking the why questions and really concerned about, um, especially in New Zealand, like erosion. I was like, that was some of my earliest memories is just being super concerned about what was happening with um, New Zealand agriculture. And my father was a pilot and I had the privilege of spending a lot of time in aircraft with him and looking out the window and just going, holy, like the erosion in the eighties here in New Zealand was insane. Um, And so I'm, I have to build some empathy for people while they go through that paradigm shift because I never had that like, aha, I've never applied a herbicide in my life. I've never, never been out to really kill stuff, even, you know, in a horticultural sense, it was always, how do we interplant in here? What would it look? So when I started out sort of larger scale agriculture, it was in avocados. So my father and I planted 700 avocados and we were asking that question of how would this work in nature? What does it look like if you were to find avocados in the wild and how do we replicate that? Um, and so I think for me, it's always made, it's common sense, right? We, we should look to what is it that nature's trying to guide us in being able to find solutions. And no matter what we do, that's where the solution, solutions are held. I mean, nature is uh, so much smarter than we are. I mean, we're like little children playing in a sand pit compared to what nature's able to do. So would you see that as kind of like our lowest hanging fruit with our farm systems here is just that mindset of, um, yeah, asking that right question of the natural, mm. what's the natural way that this plant or system would thrive and building it up from there yep. rather than. Um, yeah, and I think that's where New Zealand's kind of different because we're so highly modified. I mean, if if we all walked away, it would revert back to, you know, wetlands and scrub and forest. Um, and so it's asking that question, I guess, of the crop that we choose to grow or thinking, you know, is the stock class actually appropriate for this type of landscape? Um, instead of like, cause the minute you work against that, you know, and, and 
I'm not going to mention some of the dairy farms I've seen, you know, where you're really high rainfall event and go, what is that costing? You're now having to spend all that money for animal health. You're now going to have to find alternatives to not destroy all your fields. You're going to have, you know, like the cost structure starts going up when we don't work with nature. So we can do it, but are you going to be profitable or does the bank own you? Mm, that's a big one. And we're used to, mm. you know, my experience in the agricultural sector prior to learning a lot of what I know now was we're very good at continuing with the direction we're going in without looking at things as having multiple different effects. Like as in, we'll look at growing a crop and we know what it costs to grow that crop and we know what we get out of it. And then what comes after that crop is infected into the crop itself. So the cost of repair mm. after one of those, you know, lots of a winter feed crop or something, mm. you know, we, we don't take into account. Um, so, yeah, the mindset and perspective, isn't it? Yeah, it seems to actually be, yeah. a good example of that, John, was on someone I follow on Twitter quite closely. He's a great dude, but quite conventional. Well, not, yeah, conventional, traditional system. And, yeah, he, you know, same thing, I guess, chasing a big, big yielding winter crop. He's awesome at it. But I noticed he conceded the other day, like, he goes, oh, well, trouble is uh, three years after doing Swedes, we really struggle establishing our permanent pasture and it always struggles, and you know, and that's three years. And he, I mean, they've got like a twenty-year rotation, so a paddock will be in permanent pasture for sticking to twenty years, one winter, and through a regrassing phase, and then back mm. into pasture. And then he did concede that, yeah, no, it's um, that three years after has not flash. So. Um, yeah, and I think that's why we need to be doing full life cycle analysis on things. So if you consider like a winter crop will lose anywhere between, let's say, 50 to 100 tonnes of topsoil per hectare per year. Are you valuing that resource? I saw a re an interesting paper recently that showed that each kilogram of manure entering the waterways in the US costs $74 to clean up because of eutrophication and nitrification and algal blooms and sedimentation and all that stuff. And it's like, if we started to really look at what is the full cost of this type of behavior, like let's say if we put the full cost behind PKE, all right, what is, what is that environmental cost in Indonesia? What is that cost here? Maybe animal performance. I don't know. It's just an example. But if we start to think in whole systems, then some of the things that we do become unbearable if we actually had to price it out. Yeah. And I think that it's obviously left off, you know, most consultants wouldn't have that in their spreadsheet for when they're weighing out the pros and cons of a whatever no. whatever system X is. So um, yeah. I just, I wish I could remember it. I, the other day I read the stat about, we're talking about topsoil loss. Someone worked it out, like if you lose the width of a piece of paper off the top of your paddock, oh, yeah. someone worked it out, like how many tonnes of topsoil that actually was and it was, in the thousands, and that's just a width of a piece of paper. So it's mm. uh, quite catastrophic, really, isn't it? So, mm. I've heard people on the show yeah. talk about losing well, a wire yeah. or two on their fences. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. But I think part of it is just that we have this short term mentality about agriculture, and we just can't keep doing that. I mean, we need to be thinking longer term. And, and and moving away from this production model and moving into a profitability 
a diversity model. I mean, that's the conversations we're hearing on so many different levels now in agriculture. And I think we have the innovation in New Zealand. I think that when you think about low-hanging fruit, our ability to innovate is extraordinary in New Zealand, you know, for such a small country. You know, and a lot of people do look to New Zealand thinking that these are the models. So I've just been talking to some Welsh farmers and they were like, oh, well, we discovered, you know, rotational grazing four years ago, you know, the farmers in Wales. And they're like, we're going to do the New Zealand model. And I'm like, "Uh, can I just stop you there? (laughs) Can we not do rotational overgrazing? And can we really think about things like resilience? What's the cost of being on these short cycle rotations is you now have root systems that go an inch down, which means you're an inch from a drought. And so two weeks in, people are dried up and they're in a drought. And it's like, it, it is a direct consequence of our management that we end up in these situations. And, and if you've only got roots that go an inch down, well, the nitrates get past those roots real fast and off they go. And there's some great research that came out of Ireland looking at diverse multi-species cover crops for lamb forage and they found that you get those diverse systems in there, deep rooting systems and your nitrate losses drop dramatically and we need to be thinking that way like i just don't think we have the social license anymore to just discriminately cause destruction because we're actually affecting climate change we're affecting water quality you know the 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 domino effect of what we're doing on our own blocks of land is massive and i think we're only just starting to wake up to that Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> so it's perfect for this next question I've got brewing for you, Nicole. And that's, um, we've got really good at managing these broken systems, as in, you know, we've got shallow roots, so we go faster with the irrigation, we shorten our round out, we smash the pasture down to keep the quality, I'm doing the inverted fingers thing here, the quality to stop everything going to seed, because, you know, we get a Norwest day and bang, the whole lot's gone to seed. Mm-hmm. And so... And and also the application of N to get that instant response after grazing once once we've lost all our solar panels. Um, the farmers that are working those systems, which is the majority of farmers, can't see beyond that and have seen it in areas where they've perhaps not gotten back quick enough of the pivot or perhaps mm-hmm. missed a run with, with the fert spreader and seen an instant disaster. And so they're stuck. Mm-hmm. What would you have to say yeah. to those people to begin their inquiry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, and I think um, these rules that they find are true in conventional agriculture. It is true that you're going to lose quality. It's true that you need fertilizer and you need irrigation in that system, and so it's that willingness, I think, to go and see people that are breaking these rules that are showing that you can do tall grass grazing, high production dairy systems, that you can do dairy farming without nitrogen, that your system doesn't straight go to seed and you you have drought resilience. And there are these examples right across the country. And I think your group is, is demonstrating that. And so I think the first thing is to actually go out and ask those why questions and, um, yeah, we've had some instances with some conventional agronomists who've just come out and gone, oh, well, you know, they're just mining their system or and just totally disregarding what's happening instead of going, I wonder why and how is it that you can do this? Why have you not applied nitrogen for 16 years and you're still way above average milk production? And so I just really encourage people to have curiosity and have an open mind about this because this is not a new thing in New Zealand. There are 
people all across the country that have been doing this for a long time, who I think probably have gone a bit quiet because they got really jaded and disappointed with not being heard and not being accepted and being treated like they were, you know, some kind of weirdos. And it's like, these guys are, they're doing something that you want to get interested in. And that coming from you, Nicole, as our first sort of, you know, qualified scientist that's not just a farmer on the show that speaks volumes to, to hear you say the words dairy farming, mm. high performing dairy farm systems without nitrogen. You know, we just spent mm. like yeah. an excess of $10 million on an overseer system to manage our nitrate losses, but no one's having, I mean, we we put a 190 kilogram per hectare of nitrogen cap on our dairy farm systems. And we've got industry leaders writing peer-reviewed papers saying that's going to cripple our economy. So it's certainly, I love the fact that we can give farmers some reassurance that there is other ways and it's not weird, Mm -hmm. it's not hippie. It's quite exciting, the 190 thing here, is I've seen quite a lot of farmers and obviously through my other interests, there's a lot of those conventional dairy farmers, especially here in Canterbury, that all of a sudden it's kicked Mm -hmm. off this innovation wave with those conventional guys. So they're they're not... (laughs) You know, yeah. given them choice, they'd just carry on doing what they were doing. But there's a lot of them because of it, even though, you know, it is a pretty high, easily ach- achievable target, the 190 cap. But yeah. it's cool to see a lot of innovation or uptake of innovation that's already there um, yeah. starting to happen. It's not like the be all and end all, but it's a great stepping stone for a lot of people, I think. So it's a, and that, mm. this is hopefully gonna, yeah. once they start seeing it, they'll, you know, seeing it. Once you believe it, you'll see it sort of thing. So it's going to be a great start. It just, it baffles me, the lack of education and knowledge about basic things like nitrogen cycles. Just baffles me that, and it's the structures. It's not the farmers themselves. It's the information that they've been given. I know Lincoln did a study where they pulled the nitrogen out and the production went down and they're like, see, you pull your nitrogen out, your production goes down. It's like, well, of course, if you don't change any other structure, but there they are like pushing that to farmers. And so if you look, the state of the environment report showed that 78% of New Zealand dairy farms are significantly compacted. Compaction is the number one thing that's going to flatten your nitrogen curve, all right? It's going to drop your nitrogen levels like nothing else because nitrogen requires an aggregated soil. And then what's interesting is when you have compacted soils, you need 10 times more nitrogen to get the same response and you lose 10 times more nitrogen to volatilization or into the waterways. It's very simple science and it's not been communicated. And it's like, where's the place to start is not a bag, but to look at what are you doing with your management that's creating compaction. Yeah, that's cool. I suppose is that kind of the key thing to start looking, I guess, for these dairy well, yep. dairy farms being a good example, yeah. a great place to start thinking about that nitrogen cycle is with a compaction issue starting with that. Yeah. So, I mean, often with dairy farms, we will run an aerator out as one of our first low hanging fruit and then go, why is it that we have compaction? And that comes down to, is it a mineral imbalance? Is it a microbial imbalance? Have you got low organic matter or is it your management? And so we, we come at it through that kind of triage of trying to make decisions in terms of if we can, if you don't address what's causing the compaction, you're just going to be compacted again. You know, you can put in a cover crop, you're still going to go back to being compacted again if you don't address why is it that I'm compacted. Well, not you personally, but like your soil. And so, yeah, we find that running aerators can be a, a super low 
simple thing because then you're starting to get water movement, you start to get roots getting penetrated and you start to get the natural nitrogen cycle kicking in and, and we look quite good, you know? That's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, but obviously you don't want to have to be continuously running that aerator, aerator through. No, no. Yeah. No, this but is a one-off yeah. thing, right, as a transition, yes. right? Because most people have compaction. Yes, uh, and mainly that's one thing on my farm personally, that's one thing we've probably got quite a bit of that's a challenge because with deer, yeah, it's not like kind of, you know, how with cares, it's quite often deep compaction. Uh, the deer is yeah, quite shallow, just right in that top inch that you see yeah. a bit of damage that we, you know, obviously we do some management things that to try and mitigate that as best we can, but because of our system, we do have some limitations like with our mob stocking and things like that. We've just key times of year, mm-hmm. we're a wee bit limited. So uh, yeah, so trying to make the best of best of what we can with within what we're doing. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, and I have talked yeah. to someone about who's just taken on a farm. We're talking about going in on an aerator to you know start to try and uh, kickstart that process a bit. Well, help help our process, mm-hmm. and then for his farm, he's just starting with a farm called Turkey, so he's um, starting to you know yeah. start that hamster wheel or that um, pendulum swinging in the right directions. Yeah, and I mean an opportunity if you're running an aerator to get biologicals down there while you're at it and i think it um not to be controversial because i never am obviously but um, thinking about deer it's like what is the environment that we're running deer in and you see deer out in great big open fields with you know fences but they're browsing forest animals and here they are out out in the open and it's like no wonder they run in circles it's probably the great one of the greatest things for yeah, you know, once we started diverse pastures, and obviously we've ramped that up quite a bit last couple of years. But as soon as we started adding diversity, that was we started going. Obviously, we're working on our like our mineral balances. You know, one S where we started. Yeah. Once we started adding more diversity, productivity was just the way they went. Deer were happier, so they're not yeah. not tracking yeah. our fence lines. Still got to have the odd wallow in paddocks because they just that is their natural behaviour. So we just keep them away from mm-hmm. water waterways and just confine it. And let them go with it, really. So, um, yeah, a lot of those things. So, you're planting browse. Would you plant browse as well? Browse. Browse. Yeah. So, deer browses. Yeah. What browse have you got? Uh, well, but the bulk of our pastures we've done are still a bit of ryegrass based, but then a lot of herbs. Um, but then yeah, multi-species pastures were sort of yeah up around like that twenty species marks for those for those crop paddocks. Um, and they just love, yeah. they just seem to love everything like radish, um, yeah, daikon radish, phacelia, um, mustard, yeah, and, and all every deer are different. Yeah. Like when, I'm, when I'm shifting a thing, if I'm break feeding them, they don't all go for the same thing. They allow all after something different. Like some stags, they just go for mm. the phacelia. Other ones are just always about the radish. Other ones are all about the sunflowers. But then a week later, yeah. they'll be changed again. We're just, now they're on the radish and it's just you've got to add more time to your day to observe that sort of stuff and they're just so much happier yeah. with that diversity so way more settled so what i mean by browse is things like red matapore or tagasasti or you know flax yep. those kind yeah, of yeah, yep. we've got like a bit of flax uh, yep uh yeah. i've got uh sam yeah. Fine, um but lotus so yeah no there's yeah so no, it's it's all cool stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so we're talking a bit about soil structure and compaction. 
how do how do mm-hmm. our farmers tell Nicole? Um, you know what's what's what can they do to identify whether their soils are compacted? Well, a lot of them are probably noticing that it's quite hard to get a fence post in the ground. It's one way when you're just stepping in and you can't get a post in the ground. Um, but Before yeah, getting getting yourself dance. a penetrometer or you know, and and looking for how many how how high is the psi that you need to push on that penetrometer. And so ideally, you know, we want that that PSI to be below 250 and we're, we're seeing farms hit 600 right on the surface. I mean, you've got, there, there's that deer pan or the cow pan really hard to kind of get through, but you need to do that with adequate moisture. And I just did an article for Acres USA and I was talking about one of my, my favorite ranches. Her name's Betsy Ross. She's like in her eighties. You guys want to check her out. She's amazing. And she just walks around with this really long screwdriver and she's just constantly pushing it in the ground. And she's developed that ability to sense what her compaction is and what depth it is just through that experience. So you don't have to get an expensive penetrometer. I mean, they're about 300 bucks, but I would use that as a diagnostic tool to go actually yeah, we do, we do need to be able to come in here either with an aerator or maybe it's something that even requires a deep rip. But again, I'm just going to do that once and then I'm going to address what's causing the problem. So yeah, pretty simple. I mean, and you can do an infiltration test as well. And unless your soil is a water repellent, which um, I've been on many in New Zealand that are water repellent, but um, if the water's not going in, that's a pretty pretty good sign you've got compaction as well. So when you do an infiltration test, you're putting in an inch of water you want that to go in faster than 12 and a half minutes. And if it doesn't, your water cycle is broken and it probably says something about compaction as well. So, you know, there's really simple stuff. I've actually got an online class called, it's a soil health foundation, but we're calling it read your soil like a pro. So it's basically all of these different tools so you can assess your soil health yourself. And I think that's the main thing is I find most people aren't even digging holes to know. So dig a hole Take a look. Are your roots dense and are they going way below 300 millimeters? And what you find is most are sitting up around five to eight centimeters. And then the roots, any roots that are getting further down are really fine. And so there's your inch from a drought story. Another powerful tool that I recommend a lot is your book, Nicole. Um, oh, yes. Let's, let's, let's talk about the book. <laughs> Great segue, John. Yeah, yeah. Great segue. There's even a um a a diagram on how to do a water infiltration test in that book. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you wrote the book. What has it been out for a bit over a year now? Yeah, October 2019. So the book's called For the Love of Soil, and the idea behind it was I had a lot of people ask me, "Can you just write like a soils for dummies book?" And I'm like, "Wow, there isn't anything dumb about soil." And I thought. You know, I actually wrote a book like 10 years ago and it got deleted by Dropbox. I'd written 30,000 words and the whole book disappeared. And uh, (laughs) I cried for like three minutes and I'm like, oh, well, spilt milk and all that. Couldn't do anything about it. Um, It was gone. And I'm so grateful now because what it ended up providing the foundation for was... um, people's stories like instead of it being technical it was it's much more about what is someone's experience with this so sometimes I'm like I really want to talk a whole chapter just on molybdenum and I'm like but that's boring and we would fall asleep so instead I want to talk about what is this particular farmer or rancher's experience with molybdenum for instance and and what difference did it make and so it's very much um 
looking at our triage process. So when I walk out on a piece of land, people are always like, whoa, what do you see? How do you see that? And it's like, well, I had to put it into words in terms of there's a triage in terms of where would I take action? And there are things that your land is saying to you. Like I think of land as basically, it's a whole series of your fingerprints are all over it, your dirty little fingerprints of what you've been doing in the past. And the land speaks because it's going to tell you in terms of pests, weeds, and diseases, the overall health of a crop, what your animals are looking like. Like it, uh, I'm an agroecologist, right? So what that means is we, we look at that whole farming system as an ecological, you know, system in terms of all these different interactions. And you can't just look at one aspect of it. And unfortunately, this is not what's being trained in the universities or the research centers. It's all this siloed mentality, whereas we need to go out and be able to look at those interactions. And so it's a hard thing to kind of put down on paper and write about, but, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, once you've written something, you're like, Oh, I wish I could go back. Cause I would do this now. So I'm working on book number two. <laughs> so I'm like, There's so much cool stuff happening out there that needs to be shared. So is that kind of the second one? Is that going to be more of a, like a revision of the first one or is it down a different path slightly? Um, it's still going to be, I think, uh, farmers' stories, but on some of these different aspects. So what it might be, epigenetics is really fascinating to me and looking at how does epigenetics play out in terms of plant breeding or how does epigenetics play out in terms of animal performance and human health. I mean, I think the human health angle always comes in and I use I think Jono's in the book in terms of thinking about some of these human health aspects or chemical exposure and yeah that's the stuff that's quite interesting so I think there's probably one or two of the stories I'm going to follow up with because there's been big changes since the book came out um, that are worth kind of talking about one of the case studies I share is um, Cottonwood Ranch who had one of the worst soils I've ever seen in my life right next door to one of the best soils I've seen in my life. And so it was this extraordinary example. And um, they've since gone on to follow a program and uh, rehabilitate that that really broken ground. So it's going to be quite, quite cool to follow up with them and, and see, you know, what are they up to? What's what's changed? Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully not too much copying. And also people were kind of like, can we – you know, what's some of the practical stuff that we can make? Like my passion is how do we close the loops? What are some of the things that we can make on farm? You know, and simple things like the lactobacillus or, um, you know, Johnson's Sioux or vermiculture. I mean, I've got a whole book in me on vermiculture, but I kind of think there's enough books on worms out there. It's just bringing in the biological aspect of, of worms I probably would add in. Um yeah. And, you know, like you're always discovering stuff. And what's cool about writing a book is it encourages you to do the research and the literature as well. You know, like bio-priming of seeds, the research that comes out every single week on that is just mind boggling, you know, in terms of understanding what are some of these metabolites, how does that influence the seed microbiome? I mean, seed microbiome wasn't even a terminology until about five years ago. I mean, it just wasn't being discussed. And now it's something we see all the time in, in the literature. So, um, you know, I think of what we're doing in soil right now It is the new frontier and it's some of the biggest realms of discovery. And so when you hear someone in the media in New Zealand who are really good at saying, oh, this whole regenerative stuff's a load of garbage, it's like, they are not reading the up-to-date literature at all. And, and I don't expect farmers to do that either. 
but there's so much stuff to come in that supports what it is that we're doing on the ground and how it is that you can be so successful. Yeah, it's definitely one thing. It was not this podcast, but Jono's own podcast with, he recorded one not long ago with Steve Ratton. And mm. which was such a stroke of luck that he managed to get that one recorded when he did. It was. So I've listened to it multiple times now. We're just so lucky we got that mm. when we did just for that last snapshot of Steve. And it was just awesome. And yeah, he he talked a lot about that work mm. that has, you know, he did a lot of that work and it's been done. That's already in the library at Lincoln. And he's like, mm. well, it's here. Mm. <laughs> come, come get it. And yeah, you're right. Like us farmers, mm. we, we haven't got time to sit down and read papers end to end. So your point about certain commentators that say there's nothing in the literature when there is, it's either I don't know whether they're being deliberately disingenuous or they just aren't very good at researching themselves. What about um, <clears throat> it sort of has my mind wandering, which is dangerous, but thinking about mm-hmm. – uh, the economic impacts of the shift in our spending. You know, with all this information there, it's it's relevant to New Zealand. It's been collated in New Zealand for New Zealand. It's not being pumped out there. Is there a fear amongst the industry about what it would look like should we get to a point where we don't need these inputs? You know, here we are saying, um, for instance, farming without nitrogen, is not just possible, but actually really simple to do. Well, I was, I'm part of like a federal task force right now talking about soil health. And one of the comments was the blowback from the industry is just going to be so huge. And I'm like, yeah, it is. is. So adapt or die. So find some alternatives. There's other ways for companies to be making money without them just peddling NPK. Um, and all the herbicides and pesticides, these biopesticides. And we, uh, one of my ranches just got um, an email from Bayer saying, could they interview them to get their feedback on a new herbicide that builds carbon? These companies aren't stupid. They're going to follow wherever they see. They know they need to adapt, and mm. they always have done. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the majority of this money needs to be going into the back pockets of farmers, not into supply companies. And the supply companies are making a very jolly profit. I think Monsanto, before they became Bayer, I think that year they made $24 billion profit. Mm. Come on. Like, hello, who's winning? Not the farmers. So I think it's time for farmers to actually take that power back into their hands and, and close those loops and start looking at, we're not saying you'll never put inputs in, but using inputs more efficiently, more effectively, thinking about microbiology when we do that. Um, making our own trace element brews and all sorts of stuff. It's super fun. Um, remember that conference, Jono, you were at um, Regenerate and we had um, Grant Sims from Australia and Grant Sims is the chairman of Victoria No-Till and what he's doing is extraordinary and he's been doing that for over a decade, making his own um, brews that basically go down when he's um, seeding or as foliars and, you know, it's just profit at that point. Um, and has incredibly healthy um, ecosystems, soil health, and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, my concern's not so much with with what the chemical company's um, stock value is going to be. And no. and just as well on that, you know, Grant's not dealing with twenty uh, liter little compost tea brews, is he? He's massive scale. 
you know, mm-hmm. people have this listening of, uh, you know, composting and brewing as being backyard garden stuff, but we're seeing it applied. And you, you know, Grant, perfect example. He's got these yeah. lines of thirty thousand litre tanks all wired mm-hmm. up with, you know, automated aerating recirculating systems that he puts into his might be like a 40 plus meter sprayer and he's out doing thousands of heat years a day it's like what's your excuse mm-hmm. you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 and i think yeah i think he's on 8500 acres and you know i look at our current client base and you know increasingly i'm not <clears throat> consulting because we're doing more kind of bigger projects and educational projects and designing you know, certification systems or uh, working with companies to do some of this thinking about, you know, how do you adapt? Um, But with our average client would be about 10,000 acres. So I'm kind of like baffled as well. Like, why do you think this is a backyard gardener thing at all? And that's part of what the book was sort of talking about is these are all large scale operations. This, This is how do we really get chemicals out of the ecosystem? How do we start to restore our short water cycles? How do we clean up our waterways? You know, and how do we, how do we get profitable? And, and yeah, I, that's what I'm passionate about seeing is just ecosystems restored and farming communities restored, you know, here in Montana to drive through sort of Northern parts and Eastern parts, it's just like that literal dead, you know, like the, the tumbleweed rolling through the dusty main street. There's nobody around. These towns are just dead. Um, and when you talk to farmers out there, there's like, we can't, we can't continue to farm out here. The only one that's winning is the bank. Wow. I was talking to a guy yeah. this week about um, about succession and how when he purchased his farm and uh, what he said was each generation has to buy more land to make it work. You know, has to increase their scale. And yeah. um, you know, probably that's been there subconsciously in my mind, but that just really it was a really moving thing to hear from a gentleman who had felt he had to do that went into and it was during the mm. 80s in a period where things were pretty dire and how it basically took him 45 years to get back to square one to to start making money mm-hmm. jeez mm. yeah and that's what i see as a trend that's reversing and and it's a conversation i'm only just starting to hear more recently which is that people are wanting to sell land because they're like, I don't need all this land. You know, actually we are getting better relative feed quality. We're getting better quality, better profitability, better carrying capacities. I might as well sell that land, you know, and especially with the value of land these days, artificially inflated. And and I think your government, your government, the New Zealand government's doing something about that at the moment. (laughs) Your government too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just got my, I just got my green card. So I'm officially an Amerikiwi. I mean, a quorum sense had arrived when I was still in New Zealand. I think that might have made me feel inspired to stick around. But I felt at the time like I was pushing up against total resistance and organizations not wanting to even look at soil health or regenerative agriculture. And so I went, I'm going to go where I'm wanted. Um, And it wasn't New Zealand. And now I've got a really, I've got used to these big open spaces. I mean, I absolutely adore it. And, you know, if I only had to do one thing for the rest of my life, it would be moving cows on horseback. So this is the environment for me where I I'm flourish. Yeah. So Nicole, I hear of people reading your book all the time and uh, you know, it's pretty cool. Cause they, 
they've seen me in the book and they'll come and see me. Oh man, I just love that Nicole book. And um, this is just my experience. <laughs> and so what uh, what are you getting as as feedback from the book, Nicole? Um, yeah, it's it's absolutely blowing my mind how successful the book has been. So it was self-published. And what I did is just rely on the mycelial human networks. And it has been extraordinary. And when people reach out, they it's for two things. I find, first of all, they really like the first line of the book, which is, I say, I'm not normal. And then I explain what normal is, but I get people going, I'm not normal either. Yay! <laughs> and then the other thing is about the paraquat poisoning. Um, so uh, I had paraquat poisoning when I was 15. And what it did is it left me with pretty much symptoms of having fused vertebra, um, my C1, C2, and extreme muscle tightness. Like my, my shoulder muscles were just like solid rocks. And then I would have headaches every two or three days and migraines you know, um, at least once a fortnight, if not more. And when we discovered it was paraquat, uh, I did a full detox and got rid of it out of my system. And, and it was like, it was like life before I discovered this and then life after it's, it's totally immeasurable, the difference. And that's probably the thing that people reach out the, the most about. And so it's really kind of alarm bells for me. And, and you know, this too, Jono is how many people out there in agriculture have serious either agricultural chem poisoning or epigenetic distortions that are affecting their kids and their grandkids. And so there's some pretty good research to show the effect of fungicides and stuff. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And are you going to dive into this a bit deeply into the, into the second book? Just as yeah, personally yeah. of really interest to me, you know. <laughs> well, I think so. And, and that's kind of like people ask, I'm mean, like, I'm not a medical doctor. And they're like, what should I do? And so there are a couple of different things that are really helpful to get chemicals out. I was talking to a guy recently and he'd done um, uh, infrared saunas. And when he jumped into the sauna um, with his family, the first time they tried it, what came out of his body was 2,4-D. That's all they could smell. Like the whole sauna just filled up with the smell of the chemical. Mm. Everyone had to jump out. They basically had to throw the clothes that he was wearing or the towel had to be thrown out or burnt. Um, and he had to do about 10 sessions before he could actually sweat that didn't smell like 2,4-D. Um, so I think a lot of the time we're unaware. Like, you know, sheep dip. I grew up on an Air Force base. We were playing in the drains um, at Fenuapai, and I see like those those areas have been declared like permanent um, hazardous sites. They don't know what to do with that chemical. So yeah, we're exposed all the time, and it affects our thinking. It affects our general well-being, and we're seeing just this blow up of autoimmune disorders. And it's all because yeah, we've got this major chemical loading. So I'm a big one for sort of ongoing detoxification. Like here in the US, ninety percent of the rainfall contains glyphosate. It's great. I was talking to some farmers recently about the beautiful smell of soil and they said, oh, no, not up here. When it rains, it smells like glyphosate. It's like, oh, freaking brilliant. Mm, <laughs> you guys have the, the guys pleasure up of... here who are growing organics uh, are failing their organic certification because it's contaminated with glyphosate from rain and dust. Wow. That would be mm. so hard so hard to swallow that yeah. like when you're trying to do everything right within your own fences. And then this yeah. problem is literally falling out of the sky and you can't do anything about it. It's, yeah. It well, actually, there are things we can do about it, right? So we can do things in terms of having um, a, a phylosphere and a rhizosphere that are full of beneficial microbiology that actually have the ability to, um, to 
to convert that into non-available forms. So we're seeing nil residue testing on properties that are regenerative because of what they're doing with the microbiome. Wow. Wow. And I guess it also reflects just the sheer amount of the chemical used over there with glyphosate-ready crops, you know, being yeah. genetically modified to receive multiple applications mm-hmm. of the stuff. It's, uh, yeah. Mm. Wow. Mm. Uh, coming yeah, back to your, your poisoning story, like how on earth did you actually figure out it was paraquat poisoning? Like you must have had mm. some pretty good doctors or, you know, when you went for help well, like, to try and track it, nail it down out, to that. Pretty out there doctors, I think. Um, yeah, so it was 15 years after the actual poison. So I, I was hospitalized. They thought I had meningitis. Um, did a lumbar puncture, which probably helped the paracot get into my spine um, even better. But the the guy was actually a chemical detox specialist in Auckland and most of his clients, he said, were coming out of Hawke's Bay. So a lot of orchardists and stuff who were really sick. So he used basically a form of radionics um, to run through a full diagnostic of, you know, is it environmental? Is it a virus? Is it chemicals? Until he hit upon paraquat. Um, and then I did hyperbaric chamber, intravenous vitamin C. Um, and so you basically just flush that chemical out and it came out my nose, like this really weird gray green stank. It was so nasty and it was awesome. Cause I kind of like, I'm up for like hardcore stuff. If I'm going to do something, I want it to be hard and fast, you know, like <laughs> just get it out. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was so sick. And then like, just, it was just amazing afterwards. Like just that whole fog lifted and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I've been living in this fog for 15 years, I wonder how much more dangerous I'd be today if I hadn't had that event. <laughs> and I wonder how many other people have that and don't even know it. Yeah. Oh, so many. So I meet so many people. Mm. It's crazy. So I wonder yeah, whether and, or not, I wonder whether or not the normal. paraquats, but like, you know, like radioactive man sort of thing, like it's, mm. <laughs> you've been drenched in this yeah, chemical well, and it's just made you this crazy weird human that you are. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, oh gosh, what's his name? John John McRae down in Queenstown. Uh, he had an autoimmune from sheep dip that it got so bad he couldn't leave. He was he was bedridden, and basically that was going to be his life until he found a chemical detox guy who was like, yeah, it's the sheep dip. Um, but his life was over. I mean, he could not get out of bed, mm. um, and it's not that. And then I meet some people, they're like, oh, I spent paraquat all over myself, and I'm fine. And they are fine, but their kids have got leukemia, autism, major learning difficulties, whatever. And then that's the epigenetic expression. So you might be fine, but you need to be considering what's that doing to your kids. Mm. I actually um, called into doctors this morning on the way here to uh, extend my medical certificate with this accident that I had in October. And mm. man, was it refreshing. I went in because I just, doc, you know, doctors, I'm just like, oh, what are they going to try and give me, you know? And uh, there was this woman there who was a fill-in doctor. And um, we got talking about, uh, she talked about zinc deficiencies and how it's really common and she, and she really recommends it for the healing of the body and that it's not in our foods mm. because of our agricultural practices. And I sat there, you know, my ears yeah. pricked up. I was just like, Tell me more. And she's like, uh, well, I basically believe that we're all just big uh, walking um, soil. And I was just like, 
Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, we need to have a conversation. She started talking to me about getting hair testing for chemical because well, I talked about my mm. historic chemical exposure, and uh, she's now got me this list of people to talk to um, that you know I can now go out and perhaps identify if there is something going because I've got no idea. I mean, I feel pretty mm. good. I've, I always feel pretty bloody good, but you just don't know if it's been all your life, do you? And and oh, that's right. Yeah. So and was, the zinc thing's fascinating. So the minute you apply superphosphate, your zinc levels go to zero. Your zinc levels go to zero. And so it's like everyone's out there putting superphosphate on and then wondering why you have facial eczema or you have um somatic cell count lameness inflammation. Lameness, exactly. Um, and so zinc has a very powerful relationship with mycorrhizal fungi. That's the in order of what they bring to the plant, first it's phosphorus, then it's zinc. If you undermine your phos- uh, your mycorrhizal levels, zero zinc, as well as the antagonistic effect of phosphorus to zinc. So, yeah, so they're fortifying food now with a little bit of zinc because it's not in the food. So, oh, come on, surely, surely we could get zinc back in the food. Wow. I, yeah, I was on the, I jumped on the, because I wasn't aware that, you know, different forms of zinc. So all of a sudden I'm, this doctor's recommended zinc chelate and no one had zinc chelate in the pharmacies around Ash Bird. And so I jumped on mm. Ben Warren's site and um, found some stuff that he's got there. But I read on his yeah. website, 200 metabolic functions are reliant on zinc in the human body. Yeah. So I've got some yeah. zinc now. <laughs> got some zinc. Very good. <laughs> Nicole, what other things... Uh, you know, you've touched on a lot here, and and I've always known you to be someone who's up to stuff. What are you up to at the moment? What do you got? What do you got going on? <laughs> so, what can I tell you without having to? Yeah, talk without to having to. Yeah, we've talked yeah. about this. Yeah. yeah, don't pull the switch on us now. Um, <laughs> uh, I probably got two major exciting things to announce, and this will be the first public forum that I've announced one of them in, which is that uh, we are developing a, a coach. The coaches school so the first one will be run here in the u.s in september and the second one in new zealand in february um and that school is designed to basically go from woe to go to someone who wants to be coaching or consulting in the field in regenerative agriculture um so it sets them all up with the business structure what do they need for coaching who do they need to be in order to be a successful coach so yeah we're pretty excited about that it's gonna it's been about three years in the pipeline and I just realized I needed to just put a line in the sand and say, hey, we're doing this. Um, That's and the other thing I'm super excited Sorry, hmm? just jump in on that. Like We've talked about that like in quorum sense at board level is mm. like mm. one of the massive learning gaps is rural professionals. So whether, you know, that mm. could be just like music to my ears, um, meeting that need of yeah. how do we educate rural professionals who aren't necessarily farming per se, but they're going to have a heap of customers mm. or clients that mm-hmm. are down this track, so they need to tool up yeah. to understand what, yeah. what, their, what their clients are up to and help them along or, yeah. or actually stay relevant, I guess. So this course would be very much aimed at people that are already well on their way in the journey. So, I mean, it could be people that have agronomy backgrounds or like, you know, a good history of working in, in regenerative agriculture so understand the practice principles um, so this wouldn't be a beginner's course at all. Like it's definitely for those that are ready or just they they've got that story. Like 
who am I to work with people or I don't have enough experience or, you know, just having that lack of confidence. Um, a bit like, John that, and like, that, bit like that, that young yeah. Jono like yeah, two was, years where ago. Where was this two yeah. years ago, Nicole? <laughs> you weren't you weren't you weren't stamping your foot and saying oi get it done we 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 had the outline two years ago yeah yeah but um yeah so people like yourself Jono, um you know who are you're already out in the field anyway you've got the confidence you're, you're good to go but people that are wanting to work out you know what there's a very big difference between being an expert in a topic and being able to coach and educate and what i'm seeing is there's there's a lot of people out here in the u.s anyway who are working as coaches and consultants that have come from a practical background, you know, so they're really good with their cover crops or their grazing management or whatever, but they can't communicate or teach that to save themselves. And so they're telling people what to do. And it's like, you, you can't put your system on top of someone else's system. It's always context specific. Mm -hmm. And where is that person coming from and what are they able to actually achieve? And so I'm teaching people in the teaching skills, um, you know, cause I've got a background in education and behavior change and organizational learning. I'm really passionate about the people side of it and how do we convey information like that? So that's where I see the biggest gap and the biggest opportunity. And if we get a whole lot of people out there that are able to coach on a large scale, that's the bottleneck right now. And Woomfa, because you see a lot of people in New Zealand are interested. They just don't know where to start. They want to, they need that bit of handholding and it's just not enough people. Mm. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, yep. no, same. I'm excited about yep. that. That's and then cool. the other thing I'm super excited about is I'm working with the Intertribal Agriculture Council here in the US. They manage or they work with 574 federally recognized tribes. They cover about 59 million acres, um, and I'm training their extension or working with their extension group basically to look at. Um, rolling out regenerative practices on, on tribal lands and working with tribal members in, in doing that. And then actually being able to create something that has a point of difference here in the U S and um, I just absolutely adore um, working with the tribes. It's really, I don't know, the level of engagement is, has just really blown me away and my, uh, you know, developing new friendships and working with people that, as far as I can see are some of the best low stress animal handlers and horsemen I've ever met. And, you know, that's, that for me is something that New Zealand really misses is where's the low stress animal handling schools. Where is the low stress animal husbandry at all? Like mm. it's not, see, maybe it's changed because I haven't been in New Zealand a lot in the last five years, but um, it's something that really happens a lot here in the U S that's super, super fun. And so I'm, I'm in, I'm in this, I'm in some yards with this Lakota man and he's like, I want you to, there was 70 yearlings and he's like, there's 10 white face yearlings in there. I want you to pull them out just using intent. And I'm like, okay. So I'm on my horse and by just using the intention and focusing on the one animal that I want to move, he could do it every time. Like he'd just focus on the animal he wanted to move and see that animal weave through the others and, and go out the yards. And I think I got a strike of maybe five out of 10, but that, that brilliance of like, how little do we need, um, is, has just been extraordinary for me. So I'm really enjoying working with, um, yeah, the tribes at the moment. Well, that'd, that'd be a cool, yeah, quite a, quite a cool dimension to it. Cause it's not just, you know, just working with people who are in this mind space 
for a start, that's cool. But then to have like that cultural difference as well um, to pull from, that's, and I guess that's probably one of our mm. advantages here in New Zealand is to hopefully connect mm. more with like, yeah, like Maori owned farms like that are into the mm. sort of, you know, starting to head down this track. And that's probably mm. going to be a cool opportunity for both them and us to, as, as a bunch of people going down this regenerative track to learn from each mm. other and, and our different styles. So that would be very exciting. Yeah. yeah. And you see where, where are the best soils in New Zealand? They are all what were old Maori gardens. Look at Motutapu Island and South Auckland and the old Coomera beds. They are some of the most beautiful soil you're ever going to find anywhere in the world. And they were man-made. Wow. And those got ripped down so quick when colonials arrived. I mean, it's like the eradication of that knowledge um, was swift. So I think the the, the rediscovery um, within communities about what what were some of those methods and what were people doing, you know, the use of fish and seaweed and eggshells and guano, you know, like yeah. they knew, knew all about that stuff. Mm is not new in New Zealand, but now we have the science that comes in behind us. <laughs> is that your puppy? It's my puppy. Yep. She's like, you have been on the phone for too long. Let's go. <laughs> All right, puppy, on that note, uh, Nicole, thank yeah. you so much for joining us. Um, it's been a pleasure as, as always. Um, I know the time is, what, what time is it over there right now? Quarter to eight. Yeah, quarter to eight. Yep. So thanks so much for for giving us your time. Um, I'm just going to let Duncan finish off with our with our closing question. Well, I think we've probably kind of covered it broadly speaking, but yeah, like yeah, mm. thing we kind of ask everybody at the end of a podcast is, what is like one jewel piece of advice you'd give someone who's like maybe just starting out or just, just you know just just down the road a wee bit in their regenerative journey is to, um a bit of motivation or inspiration as to, you know, where to go to next, where to start looking, mm-hmm. what what would be your tip? <laughs> well, not to be totally selfish because I'm sure there's a million places we could send people, but the foundation of, you know, soil health and regenerative is mindset and education. So I really encourage people to one, grab hold of my book and to sign up for the soil courses that we have at Integrity Soils. And, um, you know, knowledge is power. And then I think, you know, if they're not signed up to Quorum Sense to get on to that discussion group, because it is so powerful. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for having me, guys. It's been fun. No, it has been fun and it's been cool to have these chats uh, leading up to this day over Mm -hmm. the last week or so. And um, now we're, really appreciate your time and hopefully we can do a more one day we'll do a more long form one again and we'll really jump down some holes yes please Talk and uh, yeah you guys need to get here and we'll go and go and see some bison oh my goodness i'm not really a horseman at all but i'm yeah after you, you can walk out there i can Don't actually ride a horse it's been a long it's been a long time since i have but i'm actually yeah fizzing at the fart to actually get over there and <laughs> have a give it a go <laughs> You, you, are you can s- find you some dossery old pony. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank awesome. you so much, Nicole. Thank you very Thanks, much, Duncan. All right.
Thanks, guys. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions, or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.